0: I walked to the Café of the Black Cat for breakfast. I was living in North Beach with a painter who didn't sleep with me. He couldn't sleep with me because I was 20 and that made me a minor. He had been in trouble once over a thing like that. I didn't mind because I had never properly slept with anyone up to that time and I didn't think. I should start with him. At the Black Cat Cafe, I ate rolls and drank chocolate with this actor I knew. We sat at a little round table inside the gilded cage. He told me to go to the Bella Union Theater that afternoon and read for a play. He said he was sure I was just right for it. I was, of course. It was by George Bernard Shaw, and the critic on the Chronicle called me a natural actress. (laughs) Anyway, the play ran for six weeks. I stayed on with the painter and slept in the window seat and tried peyote, Listen to a lot of writers and musicians and anarchists and even actors. For the most part, they talked crap. I don't think a person should take herself seriously unless she is alone. That goes for men, too. I mean, it's rude. These people... Hadn't figured out that nobody ever agrees with you completely, not really. Sometimes they would break down and cry over some issue or other. I was no intellectual, so half the time I didn't understand what the hell they were getting so emotional about. Once a woman got furious about some pictures in the painter's bathroom, some ...asian prince of a fornicating couple. The woman in the picture was presenting herself to the man... ...who was partially undressed and leaning on one elbow. There were these little shooting flames all around their genitals. I thought the bland looks on their faces were supposed to be funny... ...dissociative, but the woman who got furious... Slammed out of the bathroom, gave the painter and his friends hell because she didn't think such pictures should be in the bathroom where people could look at them while defecating because, well, that put sex in the toilet, lowered it to the level of a bodily function. One of the men said, Well, Eating is a bodily function, and people aren't ashamed to be seen doing it at Ernie's, for Christ's sake, and even paying for the privilege. The woman only got more upset, she said. That was just crap. She just got madder, and then she got stoned, and then she went in the bathroom with one of the men, and after a while, we heard them taking a shower together, so... I guess it turned out all right. I wasn't so sure how I felt about all that stuff. Bizarre, I thought. Once I went to a party in a very modern, old-fashioned apartment where all but a few of the people were naked. They were dancing and, well, they looked kind of pathetic. They were good-looking, some of them, but there didn't seem to be any reason for their being so naked. None of the men had erections. There was a young guy dressed in shorts and a T-shirt. He was sitting by the record player changing records. I saw he had braces on his legs, and when he went out to the kitchen, he was limping because one of his legs was longer or shorter, and so he wasn't naked. One of the women was curled up on the sofa with a silk scarf around her middle. She folded her arms around herself when she talked or laughed. When she got up to dance, I saw that her breasts were very small, and she was very beautiful. I couldn't understand how she could be dancing like that in front of those men, because they hardly seemed to notice her. Our hostess was spectacular. She had exceptionally dramatic breasts and carried a tray of food around and leaned over everyone, asking them to, oh, please try something. She was certainly old enough to be my mother. She asked why I was dressed. I told her, I had spent half the afternoon dressing for this party... and that blue was my best color. And besides, I wanted to be different. (laughs) Defensive as hell I was. I went into the bedroom... to escape from the naked lady old enough to be my mother... and to fix my makeup. There I saw the director of my play... my Shaw play... standing there talking to a woman... She was in the corner, and he had his arm on her shoulder. He was coming on sort of strong, pressing against her. I thought he... he was intimidating her. She had that... that funny look. I struck off a book of matches and dropped the flames into a (laughs) wastebasket. She... she looked at me and yelled, ''Fire!'' And he turned around. I saw that he did have an erection, but by the time he got the wastebasket into the bathroom, both his erection and the cornered girl had disappeared. I sat down in the living room, began talking with a woman dressed in a wine-colored turban. She was sketching the new figures. Bit Baroque. I thought, but what did I know? She was drawing that dancing girl who still clutched her silk scarf to her tiny breasts. The words scrawled at the bottom of the sketch were Death and the Maiden. I noticed the director come back into the room with his clothes on. He came over to look at the drawings People are not flowers or trees or temples, he said. (laughs) You are, said the woman. You're a liberal fig leaf, if ever I saw one. The director told me I was too young to be at this party, and he would take me home. We went together to the stone pot for a drink. The Stone Pot was in those days a very simple, cheap bar. It was a restaurant with windows painted over and sawdust on the floor, soup and hot bread and mulled wine. It was on Montgomery Street, just where it is now, but I felt as if it might be on the left bank, as if I might be the last of the lost generation Everything fitted my imagination except the people. I just couldn't get them to fit. I thought being bohemian meant being yourself, and I thought being yourself meant being happy. The stage was set, but the actors had the wrong script. I expected to look up and see Gertrude Stein walk in with Alice. I didn't know Gertrude Stein had moved to Paris because it was cheaper than San Francisco. I was naive even for 20. I thought I was becoming myself and finding my milieu. I felt it was my coming-out summer. Chronologically speaking, I think that was the same summer Sylvia Plath was in New York. Or... Maybe hers was 1953. Anyway, it was the summer before our senior year. That summer she wrote about in The Bell Jar. Sylvia saw the dark side of the moon. I saw stars. I sat in Vesuvio's bar, and I was the next great lady of the American theater, how could I know I was Thumbelina without a tulip? Anyway, the director took me to the stone pot after that nude party. He was very paternal. I think he thought I had delusions of grandeur. He told me that the woman at the party, the artist, was a lesbian, and therefore a sort of psychological translation that is once removed, he seemed to be telling me she wasn't up to the real thing. After that evening, he paid more attention to me. He noticed all the artifacts and icons I had on my dressing table backstage and all my before-going on-stage rituals, my Stanislavsky stuff. He said he hoped all those tokens and candles worked for me. I could tell he was touched. I had all the appearance and attributes of a pre- precocious idiot child. Then one night, one of the actors didn't show up and the director had to take his part. He came backstage to make up and watched me with my arms over my head, having my somewhat minimal breasts taped up as high as they would go so they would bulge out of my period costume. Then he watched me paint in a cleavage with grease paint. He was impressed. I considered. The Bella Union is a very old theater, the oldest in San Francisco. It showed Old movies, uh, I think in the 60s, and then porno films. Anyway, it dated back to the old Barbary Coast. There's almost no backstage area except in the basement. I had to exit by a fireman's pole down a spiral staircase. That night, the director caught me coming down the pole, and I decided he would do. I had half a summer left, and the painter let another guy move in his place so it was getting pretty crowded. This director was rather old 40 or so but a hipster anyway and he had all kinds of appetite (laughs) but only second-rate digestion. He also had a name but it's too biblical to mention. The first night we went to the Marin Woods We stayed in a house with a lot of people, and everybody slept with somebody, so I think we went unnoticed. The next morning we had breakfast under great redwood trees. I remember taking careful mental notes of what I was wearing and what everyone said. I even wrote it down in a diary and saved it for years. Ten years later, I threw it all away. Secrets of the heart are seldom news. I mean, he made love to me, and I was very impressed, of course, with the idea of the whole thing, but I never had any orgasms with him. I didn't know how. I didn't know I had to get them for myself. I had been exposed to the women's magazines. I had the notion that orgasms were something a man was supposed to give you. Most men sure try, I'll say that much. They must read the same magazines. Or worse, they read D.H. Lawrence, I mean. When they just stop being in charge every minute and slow down and stop performing, well, everything comes just fine. Men, it seems to me, at least in those years, confuse sex with athletics or... Uh, with theater which is worse ah um, uh, performance yes it was all part of that phallocentric fallacy then the fallacy that men could do it for you live your life pay your bills give you babies whatever it was years before I found a man who let me come on my own much less create on my own. Anyway, most nights after the show, we would all go to the place and drink. I was a liability, not that anyone asked for my ID. I looked decadent as hell in those days, Hmm, debauched even. I wore black leotards and mauve fingernail polish I always left great smears of makeup around my eyes. Colette had advised Cole. I read that Colette had gone into the cosmetics game at one time. In her picture, she looks like a zombie. So did I. Morticia Adams on the corner of Columbus and Kearney. And someone always gave me plenty of wine. One night, the director asked me, what we were going to eat for breakfast. I told him, well, I had two dollars and a pack of gum and everyone got to talking about my going to an expensive girls' school and how I must be loaded or a debutante. And I told them I was on scholarship and didn't even have an allowance anymore. I told them how my father had found my diary in which I had wondered somewhat about my genetic prognosis I remember uh, writing that I was convinced that he, that is, my father, was in direct descent from Neanderthal man, not Cro-Magnon in the least. I had left this diary in a suitcase in my closet while I went away to act with a stock company the summer before. I never thought he'd read it. I just forgot to throw it away anyway. My father got very maudlin about the whole thing, which surprised me. He was a a doctor. He knew all adolescents hate their parents. Anyway, he threw me out, and I had no money now for breakfast or anything else. And this director, he said he was already paying child support. He began to look at me with less enthusiasm. Of course, I said I didn't think money was important. Uh, He laughed. He said I was bourgeois just couldn't help it. I said yes, but I was a child of depression as well. I went back to visit that bar last year, the place called The Place. Expected to see him sitting there under the naked light bulb. It's expensive now, full of hippie tourists, but he's still sitting there. He's the one with the sandals and gray hair and the long straight hair, yes, Indian beads and a young, young woman. One morning there was an awful noise. The director's girlfriend, that is his real girlfriend, was throwing shoes at his door because there I was in his bed. She lived in an apartment just at the top of the stairs and I had stayed at her place a few times just after the play opened. She told me she was sick of him, that he was insincere and not the sort of man to be taken seriously and that he didn't give very much. And, well, I had believed her because I didn't understand women. She had a charming apartment. was arty and there was lots of sunlight and plants and bright paint. She had a bottle of arpege in the icebox and flowers in the windows, and everything was clean and well cared for. She used an English accent when she wore arpege. She was a red-haired Jewish girl from New York. I remember she let me sleep on her couch. She always loaned me a shorty nightgown, and sometimes she would call in sick when she was sick of her job and say, Well, she wasn't feeling very bouncy, or her cap died or something. I tried to remember things he said that were charming, but... He didn't. He was too sure of himself. After the shoe fight, I took her shoes back, but I was too embarrassed to say anything. Worst of all, a friend of mine was sitting in her kitchen. Someone at the theater had given him the address, but he went to the wrong apartment. It was a gay friend who was in plays at my school, always giving me good advice. He sent me a card on my opening night saying, they loved you in Oakland. He had decided to look me up, and when he found himself in the wrong apartment, he also found an ally. He was horrified at the garbage cans in the hall outside the director's apartment. The place was rank and very dark, and uh, the director didn't uh, mop up very much. My friend came in, but he wouldn't sit down. He stood around like the dean of my college, saying stuff like, remember who you are and what you represent. Well, I could see this wasn't Paris, and I wasn't Picasso's mistress. I couldn't help believing it was bohemian and liberating, even though I guess I knew it wasn't going to be my real life. I saw something I thought was the new wave, the ones later called the holy barbarians, the beats, then beatniks, the black and white jazz and poetry, writing and retreating, talking and repeating beats. This was San Francisco anyway, and I had come to town. My name was in the papers and I was on the boards. We used to see Mort Saul at the old Hungry Eye. He had an act. In the room with the brick wall. Yes, I could tell something was happening. We were all beginning. I began to think I might be in love. I went to visit the painter. I wanted to tell him I was in love. He was having a party and everyone brought something and cut it up and put it in a big frying pan and the painter stood there stirring. He told me that, well, he would thought about marrying me himself, but that was why he hadn't slept with me, he said. But still he knew all along I was a virgin and he could see now I had no instinct at all for who had my best interests at heart. He told me I was making an awful mistake and wouldn't get married at all if I kept on this way. I got mad and said, who was talking about getting married, for Christ's sake? I had to finish school. I had to go to the moon. I couldn't get through to him. I guess I didn't understand sexism. I mean, I really thought I had the privileges of a white man until I was a white mother. That got through to me. I remember my father warned me. When I was 16, my father told me to get married and then do whatever I liked. I told him we weren't living in the Middle Ages. He smiled. I did get married once a few years later, me and Sylvia Plath. Same year, I think. Then we had babies, two of them. Same years. When her babies were still in cribs, Sylvia decided to gas herself. I just left home, put my kids in the car, and moved back to town. I hadn't gone to the moon, only to Walnut Creek and back. It wasn't 1954 anymore. I remember I went to look for everyone sometime in 1966. There were some outlaws across town in the Haight-Ashbury They were into color and flowers and sound. The black tights and loose words were all gone. No one wrote all over the menus. No one wrote on the tablecloth or the table. They wrote in the toilets. They wrote alone. I went back to a place where the jackpot club used to be. I remembered a woman who used to sing Little Girl Blue and make everyone cry. It was a gay bar. I remembered how she would imitate Marlena Dietrich with giant black fans. And I remembered how I had loved her more than the man I was in love with. Then I remembered what I had forgotten. I remembered a night at the House of India and a newspaper man I knew but didn't love until many years later. He told me something about myself. Some of it was true. First, he gave me too many gimlets, and I began to think the bartender was Trevor Howard. (laughs) The waiters were actually students at UC Berkeley. They wore fezes and spoke in dialect. The man I didn't love yet told me all about being in love with love at my age. He asked me why I thought my lover kept three oil paintings of himself on view in his apartment. (laughs) He told me I should go back to school and act on my own stage. Well, I never did get much older. When I came back to town in 1966, I felt as lonely as I had in 1954 There was the chanting, and the psychedelic images, and circles, but I couldn't find anyone who would talk to me. They told me the Tao that is spoken is not Tao, which is true, of course, unless you call it spoken Tao. I did not want to quibble, as I could feel it was getting late in the age, or I was getting there so late in my age, that the words had lost their meaning, and once you said them, something died, yes. Anyway, I don't like to start getting sloppy and nostalgic. I mean, I'd like to get to the end of my story. About the ending, it never did, of course. The affair, it stopped. It stopped when the director found a new virgin who was rehearsing for the next play. One night we were all drinking at the place and he danced with her and when we got in his car to drive home, he sat in the front seat with her. Ah, when school started in September, I got a new part, Andromache in the Trojan Women. My acting teacher told me I was a symbol of all the matrons of Troy, of all the mothers of the world, and I said I couldn't act in symbols She explained that the general or symbolic idea could be expressed or illustrated through the sufferings of the particular individual, in this case Andromache. I took notes. She said I should act the role of a particular woman who has lost a specific husband, in this case Hector, as well as that of a particular mother whose son, in this case Astyanax, has been slaughtered by the Greeks. I tried very hard to suffer. I would go backstage and look at my face in the mirror and see the sweat pouring down. I was impressed with myself. I began to think I was suffering with magnitude. I thought about the baby I had lost and the heroic man I had loved and respected and who had died defending our home and our city. My ruined city. My Trojan home in flames. One night an old art historian came backstage to see me. He had been on the faculty for more than twenty years. He looked at me and nodded a while and then he said, You are not an actress yet. I looked at him carefully and I understood this was to be taken as a compliment. I tried to look humble and wise at the same time and I asked, What is it, do you think, will make me a real actress? Time and the truth, he said. It turned out, yes, that he was the answer. And the next night, we left for the seashore. I remember his painting, painting a pile of kelp for days on end. And I remember laughing with him and beginning to understand, beginning to learn what it means to love another human being. He had an old place near Cannery Row in Monterey. He drank too much and sometimes wandered off for hours. But he looked at me as if he were seeing me for the first time each time. He was making some kind of driftwood collage or montage or what he called a hell of a mess. It took up most of the back porch and he worked on that mornings while I tried to cook in the rusty kitchen. That is most of a story, not all of it, but most of a story called Beatific Blue first published in Mother Jones magazine in August of 1976. This has been Jennifer Stone. Until next time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The